0: All right, we are in a series exploring the names of Jesus as we see them in the Christmas story. And this can be somewhat confusing. You start off by thinking to yourself, what is up with all of these names of Jesus? Like, what is his name? Because we've been talking about all of these different names. Why does he have so many names? Well, One of the ways that might be helpful to think about it is to to think of these names as nicknames. Most of us have picked up nicknames as we have gone throughout our life, and these nicknames are attached to stories. We we got the name because of something that happened. There's some meaning behind the nickname. And when you understand the story behind the nickname, it makes a little bit more sense and it helps you understand more about that person. Uh, That's why when we started this series several weeks ago, they put together a video where they were asking people on all of our church campuses what their nicknames are and how they got that nickname. So let me share a few of my nicknames. If you remember that video, I walked away from the camera. I was not going to play their game because I knew in a few weeks I was going to be standing on a stage sharing with you some of my nicknames. Okay, so one, a few of my nicknames are pretty obvious. My last name is Ferris. And so for certain portions of my life, I was referred to as Bueller. I was also, for several years of my life, The Wheel. These are easy connections to my last name, and so if you know Bueller or Wheel, uh, you make the connection that I'm a Ferris. All right. a nickname I picked up when I was in seventh grade, uh, this one is a bit odd, was Mosquito. And the way I picked up this nickname was, when one day when I was in class, in seventh grade English class, the teacher looked at me and said, you're annoying like a mosquito, I just want to smack you. And my friends thought that was funny. And so when I was in middle school, I I had the nickname Mosquito for a while. Fast forward to college, playing soccer at a small Bible college. I played sweeper, which means I was last on defense. My job was plain and simple, keep the ball out of the net. Uh, Two things going on at the same time that converged to create my nickname. One was there, at that time, was an NBA player named Larry Johnson. And Larry Johnson had this weird character associated with him called Grandmama. And I was injured most of preseason when I played soccer in college because I uh, had heel and Achilles tendon problems, and so the rigorous part of preseason would cause significant limping in my walking and running until we got about midway through the season. So I had a very significant limp, and Larry Johnson had this character called Grandmama, and. When I was playing defense in practice, defense versus offense, we would clear the ball out and I would scream not in my house like Larry Johnson would scream out in his grandma character. And so the, the, the nickname grandma-ma stuck with me while I played soccer in college. That's how I was, all my teammates called me grandma-ma. Now, when you know the story behind those nicknames, the nicknames make a little bit more sense. And every time someone called me that nickname, they wouldn't retell the story of how I got that nickname, they would just assume that you knew the story and you understood all of the meaning behind that story. And so when the the name was used, you would pull the meaning from the story. The exact same thing is happening in the Gospels as we're introduced to Jesus. All of these different names are ascribed to Jesus, and all of these different names are attached to stories and meaning in the Old Testament scriptures. And when you understand how those names are attached to those stories, it helps you understand more about who this Jesus is. Does this make sense? That is why we've been doing this entire teaching series, exploring the names of Jesus, so we can understand more about who this Jesus is and how we should respond to him. So today we're going to focus in on the name Lord. What does it mean when we say he is Lord. To do this, we're going to look at the birth announcements in the Gospel of Luke. If you consider on a very basic level the Gospels to be introductions for us to Jesus, then the birth announcements are the introduction to the introduction. So you would assume that what you're going to find in the introduction of the introduction of Jesus would be some very foundational information about who Jesus is. So here we go. We're going to start with the birth announcement to Mary from an angel. Luke chapter 1 verses 31 through 35 You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus He will be great and will be called will be called the Son of the Most High The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever his kingdom will never end Mary asks a very intelligent question How will this be since I am a virgin And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. All right, let's take a look at this birth announcement to Mary. You have your notes out. There are going to be some blanks there for you to fill in. Uh, Let me do a little bit of audience participation here. This is not a trick question. Okay? Everybody on all four campuses, you call out the answer. The name of the central figure in the Christmas narratives is Jesus. Jesus. Right. Mary was told you are to give him the name Jesus. This is his name. And as we explored in a previous session in this series, his name has meaning too. That is, Jesus means he saves. So somehow this figure is a rescuer. He's a saver. He's a savior, as we say it in church talk. All right, that is, Jesus is his name, but then there's all of these other names out there that he will be called. So his name is Jesus, but he'll be called this, and he'll be called that, and he'll be called that, and he'll be called that. All of these different names, and when we understand the meaning behind the names from the Old Testament, it helps us understand Jesus better. So this birth announcement goes on, and it says, He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. He will be called Son of the Most High. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is easy. This is family talk. This is, um, this is God as his Father, and Jesus is the Son. This is family stuff. And what I want to say is that's not really what this is talking about. It is true that Jesus is the Son and God is the Father, but this isn't family talk right here. Most High is a superlative, right? There's nothing higher than most high. You have low, medium, high, higher, 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 higher. Most high. What is higher than most high? Nothing. There is nothing higher than most high. It is a superlative. So immediately in the birth announcement, we're talking about most high being highest authority, This is, most high is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh, creator God, the great I am, the one who made it all. Is there any authority higher than him? No. He is the highest authority. He is the most high. Uh, Let's just take a look at a few references of this phrase being used in Old Testament scripture. The context for this isn't as important as much as I just want to demonstrate for you that most high is used to refer to Yahweh. The oracle of the one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the most high, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. Here's another another use of it in Genesis chapter 14. And he blessed Abram saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. God most high. When we, when in the birth announcement to Mary, when we see that he will be called son of the most high, this isn't family talk, this is authority talk. Most high. But it says he's the son of the Most High. So is this family talk? here? That, that word "son" is obviously family talk, right? Well, kind of. Uh, we'll go. Well, I'll refer to Psalm two in just a second. But when we're talking about ultimate authority, uh, there, there's something that's very interesting that transpires in my house. There are two questions that come up over and over and over in my house for my kids. It drives me nuts. I have to answer these two questions multiple times a day from all of my kids. Question number one: Can I have a snack? I don't know how many times a day I field that question. Question number two, can I get on computer? These two questions come at me all day long, every day. What I find very interesting is whenever I answer yes, my kids never ask why. But when the word no comes out of my mouth, it's a whole other conversation, especially from my daughter, Courtney. Courtney who is 11 years old and has a very strong personality. Dad, can I get on computer? No. Why? Here is my answer to Courtney. Courtney, I don't have to explain myself to you. You say, wow. You know why I don't have to explain myself to Courtney? Because she's 11. <laughs> and I'm the authority in my house. And we kind of treat God like this sometimes, right? Right? If life's going the way we want, we're not questioning much about God, but when things aren't going the way we want, we want God to explain himself to us. And I think sometimes God would look at us and say, guess what? I don't have to explain myself to you, and chances are, if I fully explained myself to you and the kinds of decisions I'm making and everything that's going on, your brain would melt right out of your skull. (laughs) And that's the truth. I mean, I'm being silly about it, but I don't think we really want to know. Just like there are a lot of things that my wife and I decide for the sake of my children that I do not reveal to my kids because it would not be good for them to know what's really going on behind the scenes. What I'm trying to protect them from or what's really happening, right? We don't do that to our kids, nor does God do that to us. He's a good God, and he does not have to explain himself to us. He is the highest authority. And Son of the Most High is a reference to Psalm chapter 2. We don't have time to go there, but you can write it down in your notes and look at it on your own time. It is an entire psalm that talks about the Most High, the highest authority, the Creator God, placing His Son on the throne to rule. So immediately in the birth announcement to Mary, what we have is authority talk, ruler talk, king talk in the birth announcement to Mary. Now, there's, there's two other clues here that kind of paint this picture a little bit better for us. One is when it says that he will, he will give him the throne of his father, David. Uh, this is a reference to 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a promise to King David. He says to David, in a nutshell, David, one of your offspring is going to be the greatest ruler this world has ever known. He will be a perfect king anointed to rule this is a promise God made to David and so when it says in the it, give him the throne of his father David this is more king talk and then the, the last clue here in the birth announcement is his kingdom will never end his kingdom will never end where have i heard that phrase before daniel chapter 7 let me let me help you understand a little bit what's going on in Daniel chapter 7. It's a confusing book of the Bible because there's lots of visions in it. Uh, a vision goes, the vision goes something like this. There are four beasts that represent kingdoms or rulers in human history. And rulers come and go, kingdoms come and go, empires come and go. And at a certain point in human history, there is this figure called the Son of Man who enters the presence of the Ancient of Days who is Creator God, the Most High. And the Ancient of Days says to the son of man, now you're going to rule. You're going to kick out all of those other beasts, all of those other authorities, all of those other rulers, and you are going to sit on the throne. And your throne is not going to be limited in territory or scope or by time. In other words, your throne will rule everything, all of creation for all of eternity. This is the vision of Daniel chapter 7. So in the birth announcement to Mary, we have not oh, there's a cute little baby Jesus coming. Everybody feel good about that? This is an announcement about a king with ultimate authority who will sit on a throne and he will rule all of creation and all of humanity forever and ever. This is king talk. Now, let's move on just a little bit more. It says, down a few verses, in verse 35, Mary is asking this question, well, All right, this all sounds odd, right? And I'm a virgin, so how in the world am I going to have a baby? which is even more odd. And the answer is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Oh, there's our family talk, right? The Son of God. That's gotta be like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is Trinity talk, right? No, this is not Trinity talk. They didn't have Trinity talk back then. They didn't have this concept of Trinity. They weren't looking for the Father's Son in a a family sense. Son of God is just another reference to rulers, Pharaohs in Egypt were called sons of God. Caesar was considered a son of God. Even deified rulers, people with lots of authority, people like Plato or Pythagoras were often referred to as a son of God. Once again, this is ruler talk. This is authority talk, kingship talk, ruler talk. Now, lest you be sitting there thinking to yourself, he better say at some point that Jesus is God's son or I'm gonna hurt him. It's in here, but it's not where you think it is actually in the word so. Mary asks the question, how is this going to happen? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay, so the answer is, it's not going to be a human mother and a human father. It's going to be a human mother, and the power of the Most High, the one with ultimate authority, in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit, will make this baby happen. So it's human mother Divine Father. Weird. And we all kind of, and then the word so there, which is the word therefore, right? And Pastor Jim always tells us whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? So this is going to happen in this weird way. Therefore, this child will be considered holy, different, set apart. Yeah, that's different. And we kind of, we're sitting in church right now, and and everybody's kind of quiet. This kind of hits us, and it glosses over us like, human and divine at the same time. And we don't really flinch at that a whole lot. It's very peculiar. It's very odd, weird, hard to digest. But at some point in our lives, our pastor, a pastor told us, yeah, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And we'd, okay. You know, that's really weird, right? Like there's not a whole lot of people bumping around on the planet that are fully human and fully divine at the same time. This is an odd thing. Now, we have a joke in my house. Uh, you might have noticed over the last few months, if you know my son, he's been hobbling around in a walking boot because he had corrective foot surgery. And my joke with my son uh, is that he is part man, part platypus, that God gave him platypus feet. I, you know, oh, you're such a horrible father. <laughs> you say worse things to your kids. All right, so... He's a joke. He plays soccer, which is the worst possible sport when you have bad feet. So I always tell him he should be a swimmer because God gave him flippers. (laughs) All right, so if I stood on this stage and genuinely asserted to you that my son is legitimately half man, half platypus, you'd be like, dude, you're crazy, right? But when we talk about Jesus being fully man and fully divine at the same time, Why does that just kind of brush off of us as if this is normal? It's not normal. So what we have in the birth announcement to Mary is there is this king coming. This is authority talk, ruler talk, kingship talk. And somehow this king is a saver, a rescuer. And on top of that, he is both human and divine. This is quite the birth announcement. Now let's move on to the birth announcement to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. No fooling. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. He is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. Christ. Another, just another word for the title Messiah. Anointed ruler or anointed king. This ruler that the world has been waiting for to come to rule in perfection. And a lot of times we we think about like the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, like when my mom was mad at me and she would use all my names in the same phrase and she would say, Eric, Jason, Ferris. Lord Jesus Christ is not just the more formal way to refer to Jesus. It's not first name, middle name, last name. When you say, Lord Jesus Christ, we've got the Jesus part down, that's his name. Lord means king, Lord is Yahweh, Lord is I am, the creator God. So it is king, Jesus, king, It's very redundant. Lord Jesus Christ. It could be said like this, King Jesus Messiah. It's not just his formal name. It's it's who he is. He is the Lord. Now there's another clue embedded in this announcement that I want to draw out for you. And that is this phrase. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Doesn't that sound nice? it's so flowery. It's, it's like the angel shows up. Right? First of all, whenever angels show up, you ever notice in the Bible that everyone is terrified? So, so let's get out of the whole sentimental, like the angel showed up and said, good news for great joy for all the people. <laughs> the angel shows up, they're terrified. He says, get up, I got some news for you. Don't be afraid. Good news of great joy for all the people. This is not like, okay, the angel's thinking to himself, all right, this is, this is a big announcement. This is like the announcement of history. So I really need to sell this one. So I have good news of great joy for all the people. No, good news of great joy for all the people is announcement about Caesar. Once again, this is king talk. So if you live back then in a town and someone comes into town, a messenger, and it's like, boo, 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 I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Today is Caesar's birthday, so we are all gonna celebrate and have a party. Anytime a messenger came to a town and wanted to talk about Caesar, often it would be, I have good news of great joy for all the people. And when they heard this, they knew, we're about to hear about the king. So when the angel shows up and says, I have good news of great joy for all the people, do you know what the angel is cluing the shepherds into? I'm about to talk to you about a king. Good news of great joy. For all the people, he is Christ the Lord, king, supreme authority. Now, we've dug through all of these names to get to Lord, which means king, Lord equals king, but here's our problem as Americans. We don't do so well with kings. We don't understand them. We don't really like them. Right, The last time we had any significant interaction with a king, we threw a bunch of tea in a harbor, flipped the bird, and started a war. <laughs> and The other thing that makes this topic difficult for us is, as Americans, we are ruggedly individualistic. Everything is about me and my life. And so when I, when I think about God and spiritual matters, it is always about me and my personal relationship with God and what is God doing for me and how can I grow spiritually. It's like we, we almost approach it as if it's like a personal spiritual self-help program. But we have to step back from that and try as hard as we can to fight out of our American way of thinking and understand that on a very basic level, kings have kingdoms. And kingdoms are made up of two primary things territory, and people, right? So if a king has dominion, you're talking about the area that the king has authority over and the people that live in that kingdom. So as we're talking about how to respond to the kingship of Jesus, let's try to pull it out of individual response and let's talk about us as a group of people because that's the best way to think about Jesus as king, that he is ruler over everything and everybody. All right, so, we're going to try to think about this as best we can in plural ways. So, here's what we find in the birth announcements uh, Somehow, this king is human and divine. He has ultimate authority. He's a saving king, and his rule is never ending and all encompassing. This is, this is quite the king. It all sounds nice, and we talk about it a lot at Christmas time. The big question is so what? Like, what does this mean tomorrow when I pull my head off the pillow? How do I respond to the kingship of Jesus? In order to help us, I'm going to use these uh, four thrones. We're going to think about this in terms of thrones, because we're talking about a king. We're going to use four thrones to see if we can, thought by thought, make some progress with this. Okay, so the first one is the throne of creation. The throne of creation. Acts chapter 7, quoting Isaiah 66. The Lord says, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. God is the king of creation. When he made creation, it was a sovereign act. He did it all by himself. He didn't need anybody's permission. He did it at his own good pleasure. He didn't need anybody's help. He made everything. He is the king of creation. And when he looked at it, he said, it's good, which includes you and me. He's the king of creation. It's his world. This is his world. Uh, At a certain point in history, there's a man named Job, and Job has some life circumstances going on, and Job is questioning God's job performance. He's not happy with God because of what's going on in his life. And so Job is firing up all these questions at God, and God responds with a few questions of his own Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Job's like, uh, God's like, Job, I appreciate your questions, but do you really think I answer to you? Were you around when I made this whole thing? This is, this is thought number one when, we, when we're thinking about how to respond to the kingship of Jesus. It's the throne of creation. And here's a thought. We didn't make this place. We did not make this place. Now, you might choke on the fact that I believe the Scripture's revelation that God did create it. You might want to explain it in some other way. And I understand that. But I think we can all agree, at least with thought number one, which is, we didn't make this place. You had nothing to do with creation. You just showed up one day and started participating. So when we're talking about responding to the kingship of Jesus, it starts with something as simple as recognizing the throne of creation, which is, we didn't make this place. All right, throne number two, the throne of Israel. So as the story goes, God makes everything and says it's good and gave humans the responsibility to oversee his creation. But very quickly, things go bad. Sin and evil enter the story... And it starts to unravel. And in Genesis chapter three, we see that God makes an implicit promise that one day He's gonna restore everything, make it all right again. He's gonna fix the problem that was introduced. And we dial the story forward: God taps a man on the shoulder whose name is Abraham. And he says, Abraham, here's what's gonna happen: you're gonna have a lot of offspring. And this offspring is gonna become a nation. And This nation is going to be special to me. They're going to be my people, and I'm going to be their God, their king. And I'm going to accomplish my purposes through this special nation. I need to fix everything, and the way I'm going to work it out through history is I'm going to work it out through this special group of people. They're going to be my people, and I'm going to be their king. But we stumble upon another problem. At a certain point in history, this nation decides they no longer want God on the throne. They decide, you know what? Here's what we should do. We should pick a king from among us. Certainly there's one of us that would be a good king, and so let's just pick one of us to rule over us. And so they dethrone God and put one of themselves on the throne. 1 Samuel chapter 8 says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel was... Their main leader at that point. They said to him, You're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And I'd like to pretend that that was just a problem with the nation of Israel. But it is the very same problem that you and I struggle with today. We have a tendency to want to dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne. And just as we saw with the nation of Israel, it does not go well for them. Things unravel quickly. It's bad. And they suffer for hundreds of years from bad kingship. They suffer the consequences of dethroning God as their king. And we suffer the same fate when we do that. When we decide that we are a better king for our own lives than God, we suffer significant consequences. If the first thought is, we didn't make this place, then the second thought would be, we're not good kings. We are not good kings. We can question God's job performance all day long if we want, but the reality is you and I are not very good kings. A silly example of this would be a few days ago, I'm sitting in my kitchen and my son is on the couch and he's playing a game on his iPod and he is laughing. He's like, Dad, you have got to download this game on your iPad. I'm like, well, what game is it? And I forget the name of the game, but the gist of the game was that you create disease or epidemics... And the goal of the game is try to wipe out humanity as fast as possible. And he's like, oh, and you can get power-ups and earn points, so you can make your disease work faster and take out different areas of the world quicker than others. And I'm like, that is so warped on so many levels. Now, now that's a silly example. If we dial it into our individual lives, we can barely rule our own lives right? We can barely get ourselves to do the good things we know we ought to do and to avoid the bad things we know we shouldn't do. It takes the best we've got and then some, and we still fail at that daily. So we can't even legitimately rule our own lives, and somehow we want to pretend as if we're better off if God is off the throne and we're on it. That's insane. Everything about our track record says the exact opposite. We are not good kings, you look at this world that we live in and it is severely broken, isn't it? Severely broken. And sometimes it is it is almost unbearable to live in this world. There is so much pain and consequence from our sin and our choices and the presence of evil And you look around and you say, murder's on the rise, and violence is on the rise, and lust, and lying, and stealing, and adultery, and divorce, and all of these things are swarming all around us. And some of us look at all of that, and we want to shake our fist at God and say, God, if you are good and you are powerful, then why don't you do something about this? And I want to respond to that in two ways. Number one, he has. God is the only one in history that has definitively addressed our primary problem as humans at its root cause, which is sin and evil. In addition to that, I have a really hard time blaming God for the mess you and I live in. We've created this mess, us. He put us on his planet and gave us responsibility, and we have, to a large measure, neglected that responsibility. We've dethroned him. And done things our own way and created this mess. And on top of that, we don't do anything to rectify it in any meaningful measure. Now, that's not to say we don't feed hungry kids or try to do things to alleviate pain and alleviate suffering, but if we look at the mess and the brokenness of the world we live in, we have to look at it and at least be willing to admit this is us. This is us. This is a result of our exercise of free will that God has given us. This is us. We're not good kings. We need a good king. We need the kind of king that is introduced to us in the Gospels. We need a good king. We didn't make this place. We're not good kings. And then the next throne is the throne of the cross. Uh, This is a very ironic throne, this throne. As, As we see the trials of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus as it is portrayed in the Gospel of Luke... It is narrowly focused on whether or not Jesus is really a king. They ask him questions like this. Are you really the Messiah? Or tell us, are you the Son of God? Or they, or they, they mock him and say, oh, you're a saving king, huh? You've come to save the people and rule over the people? If you're such a rescuer, why don't you rescue yourself first? And then they put an ironic throne on his, or an ironic crown on his head, and they put an ironic robe on his back, and they hoist him up on an ironic throne. And they even go so far as to affix a title to the crossbar of the cross, King of the Jews. And at that moment in human history, when it looks like everything is so very out of control, I would contend that God was never in more control than at that moment. Because at that moment, Jesus took the throne back. What happened on that cross was that Jesus disarmed and dethroned sin and evil, and he took the throne. Colossians explains it like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That cross is a throne. Jesus disarmed sin and evil and the powers and principalities that have ruled on this earth for long enough, and he has brought his kingdom. He has brought his reign. His kingdom and his reign exist now. A lot of times we'll, we will get all worked up and excited about talking about Jesus' second coming because it, we, we recognize from Scripture that when he comes a second time, sin and evil will no longer be present. We won't even have to deal with it or think about it anymore. And that's a very exciting thought. So we'll applaud it and we'll cheer it. Yes, Jesus is king, but we cheer Jesus as king as if it's only a future reality. But Jesus as king is a reality today. And we submit to the King. When there's a king, he sits on a throne and all of the people are subject to the king. His kingdom is a reality today. The reason that it's so hard to grasp this is that it is true that his kingdom is here and sin and evil have been dethroned and Jesus is on the throne. But at the same time, for for reasons that I can't fully comprehend, sin and evil still exist. The difference is, they've been stripped of their power and authority to oppressively rule your life. Sin and evil no longer has to dominate us, but it still is present with us. It's it's a weird time in human history where Jesus is on the throne, sin and evil still exist, and one day when Jesus comes back, he will take that sin and evil and discard it, because he can, because he has all the authority, and then we won't have to deal with sin and evil anymore, and at that moment what will happen is that everything will be restored back to the way it was meant to be at the very beginning. But we don't live there yet. But we do live now with the reality that Jesus is a king. When a king takes the throne, the old king has to go. Two people don't sit on the same throne. So if we recognize that we didn't make this place, and we're not very good kings, then the the throne of the cross helps us with this thought we need bad kings dethroned. If we're going to have the good king sit on the throne, then we need the bad kings dethroned. And we've already talked about how he, that Jesus on the cross disarmed sin and evil. But let's talk about two others very briefly. One is money. M- money is very interesting because money is very helpful for lots of things. But it makes a lousy king. When our entire lives are spent serving money... It dominates us and does not produce good results. Uh, Money is funny. It will say, the more you have of me, the better off your life will be. I find it very interesting that Jesus would say the very same thing to you. The more you have of me, the better your life will be. And scripture understands the, the tug and pull of this by saying you can't serve two masters. Either money will be your king or Jesus will be your king. But do not be deluded into thinking that both can sit on the throne at the same time. The other one is ourselves. Uh, we like to, we already talked about it when we talked about Israel, we like to dethrone God and rule our own lives. Most of us don't do this in a, in a like, comprehensive way, like, Jesus, I'm not gonna submit to you at all. Some of us do that, but for those of us that consider ourselves Christians, normally what it is is just like little areas of our lives, right, where we'll say, yeah, I'll recognize Jesus in this area of my life, but I'm gonna sit on the throne in this area of my life. Now, let me just ask you a very simple question. How's that working for you in that area of your life? You getting good results? My guess is your greatest pain, your greatest shame, your greatest guilt, your greatest disappointment, your greatest frustration are in the areas of your life where Jesus is not on the throne. I don't need a lot of rhetoric or argumentation to make that point. Last throne. The throne of eternity. We've talked about this. One day Jesus is coming back the second time. And when he does, his rule will be for all eternity. All people for all eternity. He's the king. And at that point in history, everybody will know it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. At some point in human history, everybody's going to recognize Jesus as king. The question is, will you and I voluntarily submit today? Revelation chapter 21 verse 5 says it this way. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's going to be a good day right there. That's when the sin and the evil are set aside and everything is restored back to the way it was meant to be. And Jesus is king and we are his subjects living in his kingdom. Two thoughts about kingdom stuff and then we'll be done. Let's talk about the today of submitting to Jesus as king. The reason that you would want to submit today to Jesus as king is until you do that, which means acknowledging all of these things. If you're willing to acknowledge that you didn't make this place and you're not a very good king for your own life and that we need bad kings dethroned and that Jesus' reign and rule will be for all eternity, if you recognize all of those things, those put all together is called repentance. Man, I'm messed up. I sin. I do evil things. I can barely rule my own life. God, forgive me. I need your forgiveness in my life. I want to turn from that and I want to submit to the authority of King Jesus. It's repentance, it's turning to the authority of Jesus. And when you do that, you're in the kingdom. A good definition of how to know whether or not you're in the kingdom of God or not is not whether or not you plant your rear end in a church every weekend. It's not how many songs you sing. It's not how many days in a row you can streak together Bible study. It's not all of those things that good Christians do. It's whether or not the general trajectory of your life is submitted to the authority and the kingship of Jesus. If Jesus is king, you are in his kingdom. If he's not your king, stop pretending you're in the kingdom. You're not. It's either in or out. And a lot of us as Americans like to dance around and talk about God is forgives me and no matter what I do, he loves me. And all of these things are true. But kingdom talk and king talk is about a throne and authority. And you either submit to that authority or you don't. And there are consequences for not submitting today. We suffer with all kinds of negative consequences for not submitting to Jesus' authority today. But for all eternity, the consequence is if Jesus is setting up his kingdom for all eternity and you're not in it, that means you're out for all eternity. The challenge for us today, for us especially as Americans, is to recognize not that Jesus is a cute little baby laying in some straw. The challenge for Americans today is am I willing to bow my knee And submit to kingly authority in my life. Which means at the end of the day, he calls the shots, I don't. And I live my life as a subject of his. That is the challenge for all of us. And so I want to plead with some of you on all four campuses... Today could be the first day that you legitimately submit. This doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Listen, I've written more apology notes to other people on church staff in the last six months than I want to admit for things that have come out of my mouth or ways I've responded to people. I'm like, ah, I go home to my wife, I'm like, I got to write another apology note. Okay, it doesn't mean you're going to do this perfectly. It just means that the best effort of your life, the general trajectory of your life is lived under the authority and submission to King Jesus. That's what it means to submit. You repent of sin, and you live under the authority of Jesus. If you've never done that, and you're not even really sure how to do that, I would simply suggest this on all four campuses, and then I'll turn it over to campus pastors. As soon as I say amen, walk to the Welcome Center at your campus, and there's lots of people in that Welcome Center, and just say, you know what, I want to respond to that message. I'm not sure what to do. Can you help me? And they'll be more than happy to help you. It's not weird. It's not odd. That's why they're there. As soon as I say amen... Forget picking up your kids' in kids' world. I know they'll hate me for that, but go to the Welcome Center. Tell them you want to submit to King Jesus, and they'll help you with that, okay? Campus pastors, I'm turning it over to you. Everybody else, stand to your feet. Uh, a few, what are they, housekeeping items, church, family, life type things before we pray to close. Uh, Number one, as always, the prayer team will be available on both sides of the auditorium, on the other side of those railings. If you have any prayer need at all, take a walk over there, share your prayer request. They would love to pray for you. That's why they're there. Uh, Second thing is this. It's already been announced several times, but I want to add my voice into the mix. Next weekend, there are five weekend worship services. There's normally three. Next weekend, there's five. All of them are the Christmas Eve candlelight services. There is not Christmas Eve services and then a normal worship service. I don't even know what that means. There are five, five Christmas Eve candlelight services next weekend. There are none at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. It's in your weekly welcome. I know you've heard it multiple times. Sorry if I'm belaboring the point. Five Christmas Eve services next weekend. None of them are 9-11 because quite honestly, candlelight services are weird at 9 in the morning. All right? So we're taking care of that announcement. Let's pray and I'll get you on your way. Uh, king Jesus, uh, we will be quick to admit that uh, we struggle with authority. Um, on one hand, we recognize the benefits of having a good king on the throne and the blessings that come to our life and lives and the protection of that. Uh, on another hand, uh, God, we, we struggle with submitting to authority and... Um, wanting to do things our own way. And uh, wherever we are in that mix, God, at the same time, we want to uh, ask for your forgiveness and also have the resolve as we go throughout our week to submit to your authority as king. Help us to do that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.